0: Let's pray now and ask for the Lord to help us as we receive and proclaim his word. Uh, Father, we are grateful that in your kindness towards us, you've made yourself known. You've made yourself known in a certain and sufficient and infallible form through your word. We thank you that we have it to us in written form, that we can study it, that your spirit inhabits it and inhabits us as we study we pray that we would receive this truly as, as the Word of God, the Word of Christ, not merely the words of men. Help us to discern with all those who've gone before us, what is the truth proclaimed uh, through the Gospel of Judges? We pray that we would see Christ in every page of Scripture, and particularly as we look at the narrative today of Ahud's of assassination of Eglon, that we would see the power of Yahweh on display, and to see your great mercy, and that we would give that you would grant to us lips and hearts that will praise our God. We ask this in Christ's name, Amen. Take your seats and turn with me to Judges chapter three. Judges chapter three. Our text today is verses twelve through the end of the chapter, or actually through verse thirty. We'll. we'll Leave chapter thirty or verse thirty-one for for next time. You know, if I were to ask um, a sampling, do, let's do a focus group, and it'll have a sampling of young people in particular. In order to ask, particularly young boys, what's your favorite Bible story? What's the one that you your favorite story to read in the Bible? Now, this is one that's probably not going to be in most of the children's Bibles. We were talking about this at the dinner table last night. You don't find the story of Ehud in your illustrated children's Bible. You just don't find that there. But if you ask a bunch of little boys, what is their favorite story? Almost certainly, at least in their top five, is going to be the story of Ehud plunging his dagger into the big fat slob named Eglon. It just is. And this is the kind of story that, you know, a young boy laughs at, kind of snickers at when it's read and his mama scoffs and warns him, you don't laugh at the Bible, son. But in this case, and, and it's a rare case, but in this case, that little boy's instincts are correct. The story is written for us to laugh at it. Now, there's a very serious or number of serious points that will come as we study the story, but it is designed by the Spirit of the living God to mock and to point ridicule at the enemies of God. The story is not a fairy tale, it is, it is completely factual, it is historically true, and yet it takes on the form of a fairy tale. It takes on the form and sort of the, the story arc of a fairy tale, but it's one that, that has the purpose in the end, because fairy tales, you know, are not just entertainment, they actually have a point. You read the Grimm's fairy tales, for example, or Aesop's fables, they have a moral point, this one has a number of moral points. One of them is it's a polemic. Are you familiar with the term polemic? Polemic is, is, is an argument against something or against someone. And what this is designed to do, is as is is, is the original hearers would have read this, this was a polemic. It was an argument against, one, idolatry, but two, against the enemies of God, and particularly Moab. It's not merely an amusing story, although it is amusing. And it's okay during the sermon if you snicker a little bit, like you're an eight-year-old boy. That's okay. But it's not just a fairy tale. We have here a particularly reprehensible villain. I mean, he's portrayed to us as slothful, as fat, as arrogant, and dull-witted. And we find here in Eglon, the king of Moab, a man who possesses, I mean, all the physical vigor and all the personal charm of Jabba the Hutt. That's the image that we're given. And then you have, on the other hand, this odd, unlikely, left-handed hero, Ehud. And you have a happily ever after. The text ends with not one generation, but two generations, 80 years. Of peace and prosperity following this event. And what we learn from the story is is not this sort of clinical, sanitized version of the gospel. What we learn here is about God's fierce and maybe even sometimes comedic wrath. We find about his defeat of his enemies. We we discover in the story that God will spare even the most undeserving of his people. And at the same time, the destruction of God's enemies will not be some neat and tidy unseen event. It will be public, and they will be brought not only to destruction, but utter humiliation. God's vengeance upon his enemies might sometimes even offend our sort of gentlemanly, ladylike sensibilities. God may shock us in the way that he brings deliverance to his people. So this is the kind of story that I would imagine would be told by men around a campfire while they're teaching their sons to hunt. This is the kind of story that Israelite soldiers would have told at a pub maybe with some even body songs that went along with it. This is the kind of story that little boys would have told just so they could get the girls' eyes to roll and, and get them to feign disgust. It's an amazing story from a literary standpoint, but once again, it's not just a fairy tale. It's a true story that God has given to us in his word to communicate some particular points to us here's the plan for the way I'm going to tackle the sermon. Rather than trying to outline the text and break up the narrative, what I'm going to do is just walk us through the text. I'm going to read it, and I'm going to walk through kind of line by line and make sure that we have, as best we're able, an explanation of what really happens here in the story itself, because that's compelling enough. And then I'm going to draw some conclusions, some theological observations, uh, five of them to be precise, that I hope we can learn from the text. I've entitled the sermon today, A Messy Deliverance. A Messy Deliverance, and and I labored over the title probably more than I ordinarily do for a sermon, but I wanted this one to to capture that multi-layered essence of the story itself. Even the idea of messiness here, it's politically messy. It is theologically perhaps a little messy. It's morally maybe a little bit messy. Scatologically, it's certainly messy. It's a messy story. It's a messy deliverer. But it's the Word of God in all of Scripture. Every word in Scripture is given to us as profitable. God is faithful to His people through His Word. So let's read together. I'm going to begin in verse 12 of Judges chapter 3. Once again, I'm reading from the Legacy Standard Bible. I'll read through verse 30. Hear now the Word of God. Then the sons of Israel again did what was evil in the eyes of Yahweh. So Yahweh strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the eyes of Yahweh. And he gathered to himself the sons of Ammon and Amalek, and he went and struck Israel, and they possessed the city of the palm trees. So the sons of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the sons of Israel cried to Yahweh, and Yahweh raised up a savior for them, Ehud, the son of Gera the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. And the sons of Israel sent tribute by his hand to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made himself a sword which had two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his cloak. Then he brought the tribute near to Eglon, king of Moab, Now, Eglon was a very fat man. And it happened when he had finished bringing the tribute near that he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. But he himself turned back from the graven images where at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he said, keep silence. And all who stood by left him. But Ehud came to him while he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber, And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. Then Ehud sent forth his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. The handle also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not draw the sword out of his belly, and the refuse came out. Then Ehud went out into the vestibule, and shut the doors of the roof chamber behind him, and locked them. Now he went out, and his servants came in and looked, and behold, the doors of the roof chambers were locked. And they said, he, He's surely relieving himself in the cool room. Then they waited until they were ashamed, but behold, he did not open the doors of the roof chamber. Therefore they took the key and opened them, and behold, their master had fallen to the floor dead. Now Ehud escaped. "...while they were delaying, and he passed by the graven images and escaped to Sirah. And it happened when he arrived that he blew the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the sons of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was in front of them. Then he said to them, "...pursue them, for Yahweh has given your enemies the Moabites into your hands." So they went down after him and captured the fords of the Jordan opposite Moab, and did not allow anyone to cross." And they struck down at that time about 10,000 Moabites, all robust and valiant men, and no one escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land was quiet for 80 years. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's set the stage. The, The first paragraph here, verses 12 through 14, sort of gives us the stage. And and we've seen this cycle that we see repeated throughout the book of Judges. The people of God do evil in the sight of the Lord, and that that always means they practiced idolatry. It doesn't necessarily mean that they entirely gave up the worship of Yahweh, but they practiced a form of syncretism. They thought they could integrate in the idols of their neighbors and still continue to worship God. And this was evil in God's sight. The very first commandment is you are to worship the Lord your God alone. Him only are you to give your devotion. Now what's interesting here, there are some significant geographic details that we could, we could kind of skim over and we would miss some of the tragedy that begins. And anytime you have a comedy, it has to start with tragedy, right? There's a comedic resolution, but it starts with a tragedy. And that's what's happened here. Look at verses 12. The sons of Israel did again what was evil in the eyes of Yahweh. So Yahweh strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab. Now, Moab was not one of the Canaanite nations. Moab was not one of the inhabitants of the, of the promised land that the, enemy, that the Israelites had been commanded to drive out. They actually passed through the land of Moab on their way into the promised land. In fact, some of you probably have maps in the back of your Bible. If you, if you think about this, all the way up kind of in the north, there's the Sea of Galilee, and a straight line north and south is the Jordan River. And the Jordan River flows down into the Dead Sea. And just on the northern edge of the Dead Sea is where Israel would have crossed over the Jordan River under the, the leadership of Joshua. And remember, the Lord dried up the river, and the priests were able to walk through with the ark on dry ground. And remember what happened as soon as they got over? Joshua had told them to select 12 stones out of the river to set up as a monument To God's faithfulness. In fact, we can go and read this in Joshua chapter 4. The Lord even says, Joshua, when your children ask you in days to come, what do these stones mean? What was their answer? This is to commemorate that our God brought us across the Jordan on dry land, and he has given us this land. And they named that place Gilgal. Well, now that's one of the, the, the places that we see in this text. So why is that significant? Well, secondarily, we see a reference to the city of palm trees. Well, throughout the scriptures, that's equated with the city of Jericho, which was the very first place of conquest. As soon as the Israelites had gone over, they did a couple of things. They set up the monument. Also, all the young men who had been born during the wilderness years were circumcised there. So that was a covenant renewal. And then the Lord gave them the city of Jericho. And you remember the story. They simply walked around the city and shouted, and the walls fell down, and they devoted the entire city to destruction, showing the mighty hand of God there. Well, now you have a pagan, fat Moabite king who's come over the Jordan and set up a palace there. Joshua had cursed anyone who would rebuild Jericho. Now, it's not, it's not likely that Moab or that Aglon has rebuilt the city that curse would actually be fulfilled years later in, with, with King Ahab. You read that in 1 Kings 16, I think. But nonetheless, he had set up at least a residence here. That's where some of the next scene that we'll look at takes place in a residence. It's a full palace that Eglon has constructed here. But there is a Gil- Gilgal becomes this sort of base of operations for the Israelites in their early days of conquest, and now... It's all been turned upside down. Now they are captives in their own land by a foreign entity. It's not even that they're held captive by someone who previously occupied the land. The Moabites have come over the Jordan, taken possession, and now have held them in bondage for 18 years. A fat slob of a king is ruling over them. So it's a very significant historical place, and and the literary effect of this is to to magnify the shame that's resting upon the Israelites at this particular moment in history. Which is important when we get to the end, and we see the shame with which Eglon dies, it's a complete reversal of fortune, isn't it? It's telling us that God not only doesn't simply bring us back to status quo, he removes our shame and puts it upon his enemy. But also, at the same time, it shows us that the fate of Eglon... See, our, our modern sensibilities might be tempted to think, wow, was this... I mean, to stab a man in the gut and leave him for dead, was this right? Morally, was this, was this right to do this? But we see here the way the stage is set. Eglon was a transgressor. He was used of God. God is the one who raised him up. God is the one who strengthened his hand in order along with the the Amalekites and the Ammonites, to take possession of the, tri- of the land given to the tribe of Benjamin and Ephraim. But he was a transgressor. And he was essentially mocking God by setting himself up into this place. So it shows us the justice of God. Let's look at the next section. So that's kind of some of the, the set the stage with some of the geographical features that are important. But if we look again at verse 15, the sons of Israel cried to Yahweh, and Yahweh raised up a savior for them, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite. Now I'll look at that more carefully in just a moment. But note, first of all, there is no hint here of repentance on the part of Israel. None. They cried out in relief of their suffering. There's, there's no sense of their desire to renew themselves in fidelity to the covenant with Yahweh. There's none of that. They cry out for physical relief, for political salvation. That's it. And yet God answers them. And we'll, we'll discover as we look at some of the theological implications, that's, that's important. It's a picture of, of the, the superabundant grace of God that he poured out upon an undeserving people. An utterly undeserving people. But there's there's some kind of some funny things. Some, um, it gets sort of veiled a little bit in our English Bibles, but there's 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 some there's some humor already beginning to develop in verse 15. So the Lord raises up a Savior, Ehud, who's the son of Girah, a Benjaminite. Well, you, you know from Maybe remember from our introduction to Joseph that part of the purpose of the book of Judges is sort of a, 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 def, a, a case to be made for the tribe of Judah as being superior to the tribe of Benjamin, because it's David versus Saul, probably when the time that Judges was actually written. But at the same time, there's not a desire by, by the narrator here to throw Benjamin entirely under the bus. He still is a descendant of Abraham. He still is one of the 12 tribes. He still is a kinsman. So part of this is to see that Benjamin has got some problems, but he's capable of delivering with the Lord's help. But even more than that, the the, the name Benjamin, you may recall this, means son of my right hand. So listen to this. God has raised up a son of my right hand, a left-handed man. But when we look at the Hebrew, there's actually there's no word in the text that means left-handed. What it means is a disabled or bound or restricted right hand. Now that's interesting, isn't it? So it's, it's the son of my right hand who has an, a disabled right hand. So whose hand is going to deliver Israel? Then? It's Yahweh. See the narrator's genius here is how he's putting these little pieces together. Even at the beginning, as he sort of builds suspense, as any good story does. Now, what's happening, and we see this again in Judges chapter 20. There's apparently there's a sort of an idiomatic phrase. Um, You're familiar with idioms in English. We have expressions and phrases that foreigners don't understand. our brother Earl that was with us from Mexico several months ago, and and that was one of the things he talked about Is he's learning the English language was some of the most challenging things because we would have these, especially in Texas, we got lots of expressions. And what in the world does that mean? It's raining cats and dogs. What does that mean? You know, we have those kinds of, well, that, that happens here. So there's an idiomatic expression that shows up again in Judges chapter 20. Listen to this. Among all these... It's talking about Benjaminites again. Among all these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hare and not miss. Now again, this exact same phrase, it's these men who had a disabled, or probably better, a bound right hand. What does this mean? It means that they specifically were trained by means of having their right hand bound. They were forced to learn to fight with their left hand. So that ultimately they could s- swing a sling, which is uh, pieces of cord with a leather strap and a rock, and you swing it around, and, and we're told they could hit a, a stone at a hair and not miss. Well, that's probably hyperbole, still they're very accurate with either hand. Now my left hand is mostly—I'm right-handed. My left hand is mostly a useless appendage. If I tried to eat with it, I would stab my eye a, with a fork. You know, it just—it's—but he was trained. Now. We have some experience with um, what's called patch therapy. If you have a child who has a vision issue, born with maybe an eye that drifts a little bit or, or doesn't have the right acuity, a doctor will patch the good eye and force your body, your brain, to accept the signal from the weaker eye and make it stronger. Same concept here. So that's probably what's happened here. So you have the Benjaminite, a right, son of my right hand, who's had his right hand bound, but now he's able to use his left hand, which obviously figures into the story itself. But the other thing we find here, every time this story is, is told and retold, when we get down to verse 16, you know Ehud makes this, this sword. So Ehud is, is inspired here by the Lord to go and deliver. The people of God. He makes this sword. He makes it a two-edged sword, which is good for, for thrusting deeply. He makes it strategically a cubit long, roughly the length of a forearm. So roughly a little under 18 inches would have been the measurement in the Old Testament time. And he makes it with apparently with no hilt. So there's no crossbar. It's just it's a two-edged blade and a handle. That's it. He's able to secure it concealed. We're all about concealed carry around here he's able to conceal that under his garment. Then he brought the tribute, he, so in, and Ehud is, is selected to bring the tribute in to King Moab. This is probably a sort of tax that would have been required as, as vassals, as subjects of the king of Moab to bring this in. It's probably you know a wagon load of, of produce and other goods so here you have the son of the right hand, whose right hand is bound, and the sons of Israel send tribute by his hand. But in the ancient cultures, the idea of by someone who was left-handed was often associated with a, a deception. So the people of Israel send the tribute by his hand, which I think there's an implication here. Commentaries are, are, are divided on the issue, but I think the people of Israel know this is the plan. This wasn't just some unilateral secret plot that Ehud came up with and didn't tell anybody. I think the others others in Israel know, and I think that's confirmed later on when he goes and he blows the trumpet and they all instantly rally to him. But we're told that Eglon is a very fat man. They bring the tribute to him, and, and that factors... End because every time this story would have been told over and over again, not only is that played for sort of comic relief, but the idea of fatness was associated not only with being physically portly, but with a dullness of mind. So, listen to Isaiah chapter 6, for example. Make the heart of this people dull. Literally, it means make the hearts fat and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn, and be healed. And in Psalm 73, verse 3, for I was envious of the arrogant. This is the Psalm of Asaph, and the psalmist confesses, I was I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek, They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell through fatness. Their hearts overflow with folly. So this this fatness was more than just a physical description. It described his dullness of mind, his arrogance, his pride, and his folly. Now, as the narration takes place, Eglon, or uh, Ehud comes in with a contingent. I don't, we're not told how many servants are with him, but he's got a, 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 a sort of a, a caravan that comes in. They bring the tribute to Eglon. Then they all leave, including Ehud. He leaves. but he comes back. So in, in verse 18, it happened when he had finished bringing the tribute near he sent away the people who had carried the tribute, but he himself turned back from the graven images which were at Gilgal. Now remember, Gilgal was the place where they set up these, the monument of 12 stones. But instead now, it, either that monument has been transformed or the Canaanites have added to some pagan images there. And the Israelites have just accepted that. They just accepted this as part of their landscape now. I think about Paul at Mars Hill and walking through Athens, and his holy heart was grieved as he saw all these idols. But the Israelites are just, eh, it's just part of the landscape now. It's just part of it. So we're told that that this contingency leaves along with Ehud. They go back to where these idols are, and then Ehud turns around. He dismisses them, turns around, and comes back. And now he says to Ehud, I have a private message for you. I have a private message for you. I have a secret message for you, O king. And he, this would be Eglon, the king says, keep silence, which all of his attendants understood to mean, make yourself scarce. Get out of here. Now, the question emerges, why in the world would a king dismiss the secret service? Why would the king dismiss his bodyguard? Well, there's a couple different answers, and we don't know with certainty. Part of, the, part of the, the, the allure of the story is there are things that aren't answered. So it's almost as if the narrator's going, this is a great story, but even I don't know exactly all the details. There's a couple of possibilities. One is this just points to how dim-witted Eglon is. How naive. That he's willing to come... Ehud comes back and says, I have a secret message for you, O oh king. And the king's thinking an additional tribute. Maybe it's a special gift. Maybe there's some special intel, some gossip that I'm going to get that will help me in my reign here as king. There's another theory that some of the more modern commentators have picked up. Eglon's name means little calf. And it it doesn't mean like a big bull calf. It's a diminutive name. It's like we would say, a little puppy, a little calf. it's It's not a good name and it may not be his actual name, it may be one that Israel has, again, as the story's gone on, it's, it's described in this way. But it's also a feminine name. Eglon is perhaps being presented to us as effeminate. So you can use your own imagination to fill in the gaps when Ehud comes back and says, I have something private to offer you. And Eglon Dismisses everyone else. So then we're told about this scene. Apparently, they were in this big sort of a sim- um, receiving area. That's where his guards and Secret Service everybody were. He dismisses them. Then he retires into another chamber. the The Hebrew terms for the archeolo- or for the the architectural features are. Somewhat ambiguous. We're not really sure exactly what some of these architectural terms mean because they're very rare Hebrew words. But it seems to be like a throne room. And there's some who've said, well, that's sort of a play on words. It's a different kind of throne, it's a privy kind of throne. Uh, I don't think that's quite right. Uh, I think this is probably his actual throne room. Uh, but it do, does have, as we're going to see, locking doors, which features prominently in the narrative. But Ehud comes to him and he gives him another, he tells him first, I have a secret message for you. Eglon dismisses his attendants and then Ehud says, finds him now sitting alone in his cool roof chamber and Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. Literally what he says is, I have a thing from God for you. And he uses not the term Yahweh, he uses the more general name of God, Elohim, which is actually plural. So this is not that Eglon is saying, ooh, Yahweh is speaking, I want to pay attention now. He's a superstitious man, he's a pagan. And, and there's this, here's this uh, vassal coming in and saying, I have a message from the gods. And he sort of hoists himself up off of whatever he was sitting on. And Ehud strikes. We're told he, thru- he reaches in under his garment, grabs from his thigh his sword and thrusts it in. It's the same word we're going to encounter again when we get to Sisera in a tent peg through his temple. Same, But it's a, it's a, it's a forceful violent thrust but now that he's stood in all of his rotund glory, the blade goes in deeply. One of the The translations I often consult, it's an older translation called Young's Literal. It's designed to be a word-for-word-for-word translation. Listen to this. The haft also goeth in after the blade, and the fat shutteth on the blade, that he hath not drawn the sword out of his belly, and it goeth out at the fundament. Now, I had to look up the word fundament. I didn't know what that meant. But you can kind of imagine, fundamental, we know that word. It's something that's basic. It's a basic principle. So if you're, um, if you're a, a philosopher or you're a, a, a rhetorician, you're a speaker of some kind, a fundament would refer to your most basic principle. It's the, it's the basic philosophy of your argument. If you're an architect, the word fundament would, re- would, would, would correspond to the base or foundation of something. So how many gaps do I have to fill in when you get into Anatomy the fundament. So the blade goeth out at the fundament. And we encounter a man, told's very fat, he's seated when Ehud arrives, he's, he's probably in, in great labor, He stands to his feet, and kind of imagine, you know, sweat dripping down, he's out of breath. Ehud stabs him in the gut so forcefully that even the handle goes all the way in, the fat closes around it, and the blade exits the fundament. The picture's gruesome, isn't it? It's a painful, utterly humiliating death. And it's a picture of the judgment of God. It, it's, a, it's a three-dimensional graphic illustration of God's judgment of his enemies. And it's a humiliating, painful, gruesome death, but I think that's the point of these sort of graphic details in the narrative. It it, it marks a comedic reversal of fortune. Can't you just hear this down as the Israelites were telling this down at the pub? Can't you just hear the laughter as they imagined their 18-year oppressor laying on the floor in his own excrement? It's a reversal of humiliation. Moab, Ammon, and Amalek have have humiliated God's people for 18 years, and now God humiliates them. Now, we get to more more sort of a a comic view when we get to verses 24 to 25. So Ehud goes out. Now, we're not really told. There's a lot of speculation. Some have said, well, there's basically kind of a septic system, and he left by means of that I don't find that argument compelling. Again, there are Hebrew terms for the architectural features that we just can't quite get our hands on. We just don't know exactly what they mean. So whether he exited through some garden terrace and climbed his way down, or maybe there was a secret passageway and he walked right out past the guards, whistling as he went, and they had no reason to suspect a thing. We're not told. In fact, I think it adds to some of the intrigue of the story that the narrator even kind of shrugs and says, I'm not sure how he got out. But he did, and he locked the doors behind him. And the door would have been locked with a bolt, you know, a big board that would bolt to the door, and the key would have involved a hole that a man that could stick his whole arm through and actuate a key. Not like we have a key that you turn. It was kind of a, an instrument that was long that had a lever and, and pins that would push up, if they fit correctly, push up the bolt on the other side. So the servants are standing around, whether they see Ehud leave or not, we don't know. But, but they, they get the sense that, oh, the meeting's over. They go in, well, the doors are locked. And most of the English translations say, well, he was, maybe he's relieving himself. Uh, it literally means the Hebrew expression against an idiom, he was covering his feet. Because again, they have a robe, so they sat down, the feet would be covered by the robe. It's the same phrase we see when David finds Saul in the cave, and Saul is, Relieving himself, he's covering his feet. And David, of course, slices off the little corner of his of his robe. But here's the comedy. They're sitting there. You can imagine the scene. They're, these are secret servicemen. Are, these, are, these are not, in their own minds, not bumbling fools. These are the best of the best. These are the most skilled law enforcement officers in the land protecting the king. And they are reduced to a laughing stock. They're sitting around outside going, should we open the door? I don't know, what do you think? I mean, I'm, I mean it smells like he's relieving himself. Um, the door's closed. Let's, let's wait. Let's give him some privacy. And then at some point, there's got to be this little tentative knock. Because it's not even as if you could put the key in the door, turn it quietly, and just kind of peek through. No, there would have been a hole that would have been covered in some way. You've got to open that cover, kind of look in. Well, they don't see him because he's on the floor. And they got to stick their arm in. Well, what kind of trouble would you be in if you've interrupted the king in a private moment and he sees his arm coming through? So it, it, it's, a, it's a funny scene. They finally decide. They wait around until they're ashamed. They're embarrassed. But they eventually open the door. They get the key. They open it. And here's gone. The historian Josephus says, we don't know this to be a fact, but he indicates that it took till that evening before they finally got in. Because even working the keys not as quick as our keys would have taken a little while. By this time, Ehud's gone, long gone. And having an opportunity to assemble an offensive force. But this whole scene adds to the comedic effect. I mean, you have these top-notch, crackerjack, secret service agents, his personal bodyguards that maybe were named Amos and Theodore. But they fret and worry whether or not to even open the door. And eventually, they they finally go in. They find him dead. Ehud escapes, and he goes and gathers. We see this in verse 26. Ehud escaped while they were delaying, and he passed by the graven images. So now we have he's back to that same place. But that's also a boundary marker. So now he's into this other region outside of Moab's occupied territory. And it happened when he arrived that he blew the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. And the sons of Israel went down with him from the hill country. He was in front of them. then he makes a very bold but genius tactical move. As the Israelites would have, at the time of the original crossing, they crossed over the Jordan River from the east to the west. Now King Eglon and at least 10,000 soldiers have now occupied that area. The first place that Ehud goes and sets up guards is at the river crossings, which does two things. It keeps any of the Moabites in Israelite territory from escaping back to Moab, but it also prevents reinforcements from coming over. So they shut them off. And we're told that not one escapes. They slayed 10,000 men of the Moabites. And these were characterized as robust, valiant men. These were not you know, weaklings. These were not ones who were uh, unable to fight. These were robust and valiant men. And so Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel. And the land was quiet for 80 years. Now, what's the point of all this? What's the point of the narrative? We have have this this, graphic story. It's kind of a fun story, if we're honest. But what's the point of it? It, It's it's not that we can commend Ehud's behavior and say, oh, tell your sons and daughters, go be like Ehud. See, we're tempted to moralize some of the judges or some of the, uh, the, the Old Testament characters. We're not really tempted in that way here, are we? We're not tempted to tell our sons, you need to grow up and be like Ehud. Um, now, Ehud was, was, was used of the Lord, but he was, he was crafty, deceitful, ruthless. But what's the point of the narrative? I'm going to draw out five observations. We'll go through these pretty quickly. First and foremost, God hears the cry, even the unworthy cry of his people. God hears even the unworthy cry of his people. This is the wonder and the glory of the gospel. God sent his only begotten son, his eternally begotten son, to seek and to save the lost. Not because we were worthy of that. Not because we deserved it. Not because we had done anything to earn any favor of God whatsoever. Jesus Christ came and he plundered the strong man's house only because of the eternal love of God, not because of anything we had done. made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. See, the story of Ehud, the story of God raising up Ehud to save his people reminds us, doesn't it, that we don't need to try to clean ourselves up and then come to God. We don't need to try to remedy the sin that remains in us, by us, and then we can come to God. We need only to cry out to God for Him to rescue us, and he alone can and will rescue us. Dale Davis, in his commentary, makes this insightful point. The humorous way the story is told is Israel's way of rejoicing in the undeserved grace of Yahweh. The narrative itself is a form of praise to Yahweh. Now, some might feel this humor is gross and that this narrative sullies the pretty white paper of their Bibles. They see no practical benefit, no practical use in this, and is maybe especially upset that God should have some role in it. Yet, that is precisely why Israel relishes and rejoices in it, because her God and our God is not a God who stands off by himself in the chaos of our times. Isn't it true That for some readers, life right now is like those wild, uncontrollable, rampaging days of the judges. Perhaps maybe not at this moment, but perhaps you recall times in your own life when the lawless age of the judges really would fit you pretty well. Davis goes on, don't some of God's people today have to confess that life seems to have gone haywire perhaps due to their own folly and their own sin and their own stupidity? Is Yahweh in touch with times like that? Does he bring his help near his people then? Life seems to be a mess of twisted coat hangers and disconnected doorknobs and the glory of this text is that it tells us that Yahweh is not a white-gloved standoffish God out somewhere in the remote left field of the universe who hesitates to get his strong right arm dirty in the yuck of our lives. The God of the Bible does not hold back in the wild blue yonder somewhere waiting for you to pour Clorox and spray Lysol over the affairs of your life before he will touch it. Whether you can comfortably put it together or not, He is the God who delights to deliver His people even in their messes and likes to make them laugh again. He is the God who allows weeping to endure for a night but sees that joy comes in the morning. Isn't that good? This is your God, saints. This is a God who's willing to get His hands dirty to enter into the mess that you have made, that I have made. And redeem it. There's a second purpose, separate, second point, second point of the story. It's not just entertainment. The second one is that this God rules and governs all peoples and nations. And we could apply this, we can make that a theological point for every one of the judges. But it is God who sovereignly rules. But the reason we need to have this repeated every 12 times as we go through the book is because we forget it 12 times, don't we? We look at the mess of our own culture, the mess of our own age, and say, where is God? We've got to fix this. We've got to get the right political party, we've got to get the right action, get the right candidate. Don't we think that way sometimes? It is the Lord who strengthened Eglon. I mean, it was it was for the chastisement of his own people. It is God, we're told very explicitly, is God who strengthened the hand of Eglon and caused him to be able to subdue the Israelites for 18 long years. And it is the Lord alone who could provide what was needed for the defeat of the Moabites. I mean, think about how preposterous this plan was. For Ahu to go in as a lone assassin with this concealed dagger and think he's going to be able to kill the king, take the head off the snake, and then defeat all of Moab. And yet it worked. See, this is, this is the message that we find throughout the Scriptures in Psalm 46. The psalmist says, Come, behold the works of the Lord, how He has brought desolations on the earth. It is God who has done that. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This is a passage that we love to quote. It shows up on coffee mugs and t-shirts. Be still and know that I am God. And it's this sort of soft, meditative, contemplative sort of sentiment that we just to be quiet. Shh, listen to God. That's not what the text says. The text says, hush, and know that I am God. Be quiet before me and know that I am Yahweh. I am the one who rules and governs everything. We forget that, we? And we despaired the people of Israel had forgotten. They'd gotten complacent and just thought, well, the idol there on the corner, just, that's just part of life. We have to accept that now. God says, no, I am God. Your attention belongs to me. Your worship belongs to me. Your reverence belongs to me. Your devotion belongs to me. You shut out everything else and you listen to me. The holy hearts of God's people should grieve under the tyranny of oppression, whether that's physical or spiritual. But God alone can rescue us. The Saints, doesn't this make us fall to our knees in prayer? Isn't that the right response to this? If God is the one who can deliver us and the only one who can deliver us, as we see the evils around us, should we not, one by one, but also coming all together, cast our cares upon the Lord. Remembering he cares for his people. To give our anxieties to him. To say, Lord, you see, you are not mocked. It is your name that they are despising. Lord, will you hear? Will you deliver? Will you rescue? It's a third theological point. The idols that capture the affection of our hearts are every bit as fat and stupid as Eglon. See, the joke's on us in the end. To to the degree that we continue to submit to the idols that we've placed over us, that we give our devotion to them, we are saying, those things are just as fat, they're just as stupid, they're just as useless as old Eglon. They are just as helpless to fulfill us as Eglon was helpless to rule Israel. They are just as stupid, just as arrogant, and we are as well when we indulge those sins. When we voluntarily give ourselves over to an Eglon, metaphorically speaking, we give ourselves over to the idols of our hearts. We're giving ourselves over to something that cannot speak, it cannot hear, it cannot fulfill us, it cannot deliver us, it cannot help us. Isaiah 44, verse 9, "...all who fashion idols are nothing, and the things that they delight in do no profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together." But here's the other lesson that goes along with it. Here's the flip side of this same coin. Our idolatry is every bit as stupid as old fat Eglon. And also, the craftiness, the severity with which Ehud dealt with Eglon ought to be our craftiness and severity dealing with our own sin. I mean, he didn't hold back. With all of his might, he thrust Eglon through with a two-edged sword. Where have you heard that before? The writer of Hebrews says the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword, able to divide even to the division of joints and marrow, even to the division of the thoughts and intentions of your heart and mine. Are we willing to deal with sin, with the kind of violence that Ehud dealt with Eglon? Are willing to seek the mortification of our own flesh with that same sort of urgency. We also have to take note the fact that Ehud here he delivered Israel politically, but his actions accomplished absolutely nothing with respect to the sinfulness of their heart. Did it? Otherwise, Judges would end right here. But we still got a lot of chapters to go. We still got 10 more judges to cover. Why? Because the problem didn't go away. It's only with the coming of the true Savior, the true deliverer, the true ransomer, with Christ came. Even as we, in our, our catechism this morning, it is, it is God by His Spirit that writes the work of His law on our hearts as a, part, as a function of the covenant of grace that was struck, accomplished through Christ alone. Now, we can laugh at this story. We can laugh at the humiliation of Eglon. And and that's a key point. That's a legitimate point. It's a legitimate response to the text. But the joke is on you if you don't flee from your idolatry. The joke's on me if I continue in my sin. Fourthly, Patient with me, I'm running a little long, but we'll, we'll land this plane here in a minute. fourth observation is this. God will ultimately not only destroy, but will humiliate those who oppose him and his people. God is not only going to destroy them, he's going to openly, publicly put them to shame. Now, does the idea of laughter or mockery over the defeat of one's enemies. Does that disturb you? Does that rub you the wrong way, that, that there's a thought of, of, of us, or maybe especially not God, laughing over his enemies? Now see, Paul tells us very plainly in the New Testament that this is exactly what Jesus Christ has already done. And In Colossians 2, he says that you who were dead in your trespasses... In the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. He's put his enemies to open shame. I read Psalm 2. is our call to worship this morning. That's exactly what God does. He sits in the heaven. He laughs. This, is, this isn't the laugh of someone who's amused. This is the laugh of a victor who's mocking those who would dare oppose him. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 19, Paul's speaking of these enemies of God. He says, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. Does that sound familiar? and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. God is going to give them over, ultimately, to their shame. Those things that they desire in this life that are shameful, God's going to give them that. The worst thing God can do to any man is give them what they want. Give them the desires of their heart. One last and final observation we we take from this narrative. is this. The grace of God often comes to his people in utterly shocking and surprising ways. The grace of God can appear in a life in a shocking way. And sometimes the only way you can really respond to that is to laugh. Have you ever done that? Have you ever just fretted and worried, wept, grieved over a situation, and then God is here, here's the solution, and all you can do is just a belly laugh. Just, wow. And not because you're laughing at God, not because you're laughing at the circumstances, because you were, it's that sense of relief. A, I didn't see that coming. I didn't see that God could or would deliver me in that way. If you think the idea of, of a left-handed deliverer single-handedly slaying a fat tyrant is preposterous or far-fetched, then what might you think about the eternally begotten Son of God taking on human flesh? Walking among men in humiliation every single day of his life, and then shame upon shame, giving himself willingly over to the hands of sinful men, to be crucified as a common criminal, a rebel, put outside the gates, nailed to a cross, and to endure that kind of open public shame for you. Now, that's a preposterous story, isn't it? That's, in, in one sense, that's more unbelievable than anything we see with Ehud, that the, the eternal God would become Man would take on our flesh, then would give himself as our substitute, would offer up his own body to bear the infinite wrath of God in our place. But this is exactly what Paul says. This, this, is, this is the kind of thing that's that's folly to the Gentiles. It's a stumbling block to the Greeks. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 1. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The message of the gospel is foolishness to those who are unbelieving. To those who remain dead in their sins, it's a a foolish message. The best is you can't help yourself one iota, but there is one who's come from heaven to deliver you, and he alone has and can do that. For the foolishness of God, Paul goes on, is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were noble in birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Back in the 70s, Frederick Buchner wrote a book, a little book called Telling the Truth, the Gospel, as tragedy, comedy, and fairy tale. And listen to this quote. He says, that is the gospel, this meeting of darkness and light and the final victory of light. That is the fairy tale of the gospel, with, of course, the one crucial difference from all other fairy tales, which is that the claim made for it is that it's true that it not only happened once upon a time, but has kept on happening ever since, and is happening still. To preach the gospel in its original power and mystery is to claim, in whatever way the preacher finds it possible to claim it, that once upon a time is this time, now, and here is the dark wood that the light gleams at the heart of like a jewel. And the ones who are to live happily ever after are all who labor and are heavy laden. And they receive rest. The poor, naked wretches, wherever so ever, or wheresoever they may be, with this fabulous tale to proclaim, the preacher is called in his turn to stand up in his pulpit as "fabulist, extraordinary." I like that word: Fabulist, extraordinary." To tell the truth of the gospel in its highest and wildest and holiest sense. This is his job, but more than often, more often than not, he shrinks from it. Because the truth he is called to proclaim like the fairy tale seems, in all but some kind of wistful, faraway sense, too good to be true. So, The preacher as apologist instead of fabulous tries as best he can to pare it down to a size he thinks the world will swallow. See, Ehud helps us to grasp the wonder of the gospel. The absolute undeserving. The least deserving of all the undeserving was a left-handed man from Benjamin. What about you? Do you know this Savior? Do you know This amazing grace, do you know personally the triumph of the gospel in your own heart? Do you know what it's like to see sin bleeding out on the floor, so to speak? Stricken of its power? First of all, in order to know this, you you have to understand the folly and the helplessness of your own sin. If you come to that that, that understanding, by the Spirit's help, if you come to realize, I'm a mess, and I can't fix it. I am hopeless, and I am helpless. And I can't remedy that. Will you believe that God can, and will rescue you, who the one and only Savior, the one and only Deliverer, the one and only Judge, the Lord Jesus Christ. Ehud dealt a decisive blow to Eglon, to the Moabites, but he did nothing for, nothing for them with respect to their inner condition, their heart condition of sin. Didn't do anything to remedy that. His kinsmen remained sinful idolaters, but Christ has come, saints, offering himself, offering his own body, as the complete and perfect Savior, who not only can rescue our mortal bodies, but even more, rescue our souls from the tyranny, from the power of sin and death. Will you come to Him? Will you cry out to Him today and ask Him to deliver you? Let's pray. Our Father, our Lord, our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you, you have made yourself known to us in, in all different kinds of ways. Some of those ways are, are very straightforward and very serious. Other ways have even caused us to laugh. But I pray in the end that our laughter would not just be at the gruesome fate of, of Eglon, but at the folly of our own sin, the folly of any, any kind of self-righteousness the folly of any kind of of dependence upon our, our our own wills, our own efforts, our own power. Will you cause us, by your Spirit's might, to cast ourselves fully, completely, and finally upon the mercy of our triune God revealed to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this in His name. Amen.